opening in God's word to the book of Ezra. And we're in chapter 2 today. Now you'll see that it's quite a lengthy chapter. And it's certainly quite repetitive in terms of tone, at least, even though names are being, obviously there are various names being given and it's not repeating the names. Um, So we're going to just um, read sections out of the chapter um, this afternoon. Ezra 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 1, and I'll I'll be just making comment as we go along that we'll we'll skip down certain verses. So Ezra chapter 2, and from verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the children of Parosh, 2,172. The children of Shephatiah, 372. The children of Ara, 775. The children of Pahath Moab, of the children of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The children of Elam, 1,254. The children of Zatu, 945. And we'll just skip down now. You'll see that that gives us a taster of the tone. It's going to follow that same tone, giving us names and the number of the family members. We're skipping down to verse 36, where we get to a new section. Verse 36. The priests, the children of Jedidiah, or Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The children of Immer, a thousand fifty and two. The children of Pashur, a thousand two hundred forty and seven. The children of Harim, a thousand and seventeen. The Levites, the children of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the children of Hodaviah, seventy and four. The singers, the children of Asaph, a hundred twenty and eight. The children of the porters, the children of Shalom, the children of Atter, the children of Talman, the children of Akub, the children of Hatita, the children of Shubai, in all, an hundred thirty and nine. The Nathanim, the children of Ziha, the children of Hasufa, the children of Tabaoth, the children of uh, Kiros, the children of Siaha, the children of Padon, the children of uh, Lebanon, the children of Hagabah, the children of Akub. And again, we're going to break off at this point. We could continue reading on through a number of the different names. And we'll, read, we'll skip to verse 55. Verse 55. The children of Solomon's servants, the children of Sutai, the children of Sufarath, the children of Peruda, the children of Jala, the children of Darkon, the children of Gidel, the children of Shephatiah, the children of Hatil, the children of Pachareth, of Zebaim, the children of Amai. All the Nethanim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. 
And these were they which went up from Telmelah, Telharsa, Kerub, Adan, and Immer, but they could not show their father's house and their seed, whither they were of Israel. The children of Deliah, the children of Tobiah, the children of Nakuda, 652. And of the children of the priests, the children of Habiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called after their name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. And the Tirshatha said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. The whole congregation together was forty and two thousand three hundred and three score, besides their servants and their maids, of whom there were seven thousand three hundred thirty and seven. And there were among them two hundred singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,720. And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work threescore and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pounds of pound of silver, and one hundred priests' garments. So the priests, and the Levites, and some of the people, and the singers, and the porters, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. And we end there at the end of the chapter. So let's bow together in prayer as we look to the Lord to help us in coming to his word today. Lord, we are thankful for the scriptures, and even a chapter like this, we're conscious, is set down for our good, for our learning, and we pray for help as we come to it, that thy spirit might take up even this chapter, and be pleased to apply the themes here to our hearts with real power and with blessing. Show us much of Christ, we pray. Be pleased to draw our affections out after the Saviour, to that end undertake for myself in proclaiming the word, undertake for us all in receiving it aright, and we ask that Christ would be glorified. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever looked much into family history, your own family history, but if you have, I'm sure you'll appreciate the importance of good records. Uh, One of the difficulties you can have at times is you're trying to trace a particular family line and you just get to the point where no more records can be found, or if there were records, they're just not in existence anymore. Uh, One of the griefs when you've got family in... I think it's Northern Ireland, the South of Ireland, is that a lot of the census records were destroyed in a fire back in 1922. And, you know, there's just real frustration. You know, there's there's records there that could have helped me, but they don't exist anymore. Now, I say all that because you might be tempted to think this chapter is a bit dull. And let's face it, in terms of reading... It is sort of dull. You know, there's, there's not a lot going on. You know, you've got a list of names and numbers, and these names don't really mean too much to us necessarily, and the numbers don't mean too much to us either. So in, in terms of just pure reading, it's not exactly exciting stuff. 
And you might wonder, why has God placed this in his inspired word? And yet, there is a real value in historical records. Uh, a chapter like this you know, reminds us, for a start, that the Bible is not telling us some made-up fairy tale. It's not set in some mythical land, giving us some just good morals. It's the story of God's redeeming work, which has been played out in the real world, in real history, among real people. These names, we might not recognize them all anymore, but these are real people who were there that time when God was doing great things for his people. So it's true, a chapter like this isn't particularly exciting to read, but here's an important record setting down the real history. As many of the children of Israel arose and they answered the call of God and they went forth to serve the Lord and to rebuild the temple and to renew the worship of God. Now you'll see in verse 1, it titles the whole thing, saying these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity. These are the children that went up. And if you want a title, that's what I'm going to go with today. The children that went up. Now first of all, I want you to notice their leaders. Uh, their leaders. And we could think about just the practicality of, of the fact that they have leaders. Uh, as much as we sometimes dislike it, Order and authority is important. It's well and good that there were lots of Israelites answering the call to go out from Babylon to come to the promised land and to rebuild the temple. But if they're going to go about the work as a bunch of disorganized individuals, the whole project is going to be unmanageable. If it's going to be done at the whims of the multitude, it's all going to come to nothing. And so instead of that, God in his wisdom and providence has raised up appropriate leaders who can spearhead and direct the whole work. And we're given the key names there in verse 2. So we're told about those which came with Zerubbabel, that's the chief name given, but, but also along with him are Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. These are the, the various leaders that together God is going to use as he directs his people and as the practical needs are met. Now, before we think about these names in particular, can I just point out there is a real need for practical authority. You know, for ourselves, uh, the work of God is primarily spiritual, as it was even in the days of Israel in the Old Testament. The work of God is primarily spiritual, but of course there is a very practical and physical side to it. You know, today, the work is largely spiritual. God works by his spirit as he takes the gospel and he applies the gospel to hearts and he turns the hearts of people to himself. Uh, as God builds his church, first and foremost, it's a spiritual kingdom. Christ is reigning over the hearts and lives of his people. To, to just drive that point home all the more, you certainly don't have a place in heaven merely by formally and physically identifying with the church. You don't have a place in heaven just because you you know, physically join with the people of God and come under the organized structure of the church. No, your place in heaven is granted when you are united with Christ by faith, when the Holy Spirit is given to you, when these spiritual needs are met. So the church is primarily spiritual. But like in the days of Ezra, there is this physical and practical element to it. You know, just as it was important, for God to give Israel leaders in those days so that practically the work might go forward. Well, so too, God 
orders and structures his church today with leaders given to it and with authority and so on. You know, and it's, it's good and biblical when people serve the Lord, not merely by doing our own things, but by actually coming under the structure of the church, coming under the authority that God has given, joining ourselves with the church and serving Christ under the leadership of, for example, elders. You know, that's the, the command of Christ, to submit yourselves unto them who watch for your souls. Again, the church is spiritual, but there is this physical, practical element to it. And it's foolish to ignore that side of things in the work of God. There's a need for this, and God has established it. So practically, it was important for there to be leaders bringing the people back to the promised land. Let's though think about the identity of these leaders. Who are they? Well, obviously, we don't know all of them. You'll see most of the names look pretty unfamiliar. Now, you might see a few that look familiar. You'll notice that among those names, there is a Nehemiah mentioned. Some do think that's the same Nehemiah as from the book of Nehemiah, although it's, to me it seems very unlikely. These events are taking place something like maybe 90 years apart. So I just don't see how it could be the same Nehemiah. It's probably just another leader with the same name. Uh, You'll also see that there is a man called Mordecai. You might recognize his name from the book of Esther. Uh, Some think that's the same man, and I suppose in terms of the timeline, it's possible. It it could be him, Um, but it's perhaps more likely that it's just another man with the same name. Uh, Most of the names we don't recognize, but I want to draw your attention to the first two names on the list, to Zerubbabel and then to Jeshua, or you could call him Joshua. These men are very significant. To take Jeshua or Joshua first, he's called the son of Josadak elsewhere. For example, in chapter 3, verse 2, he's Jeshua, the son of Josadak. Josadak was the high priest when Judah was first carried off into captivity. He was a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and he had been operating as the high priest, the line of uh, succession had brought the high priest to Josadak, and he was fulfilling that rule um, for Israel at the time when the nation was taken into captivity. Well, here's his son. And I suppose the point then when we see Joshua mentioned is that in bringing Israel back to the promised land, God has also brought back the appropriate high priest. Here's the man, the specific one, who can stand in that office as high priest and who can go forth and represent Israel again before the Lord. This is God's appointment for the rule. Now, bear in mind that high priest wasn't an office that you were meant to just take upon yourself at your whim. It wasn't as if Israel were just meant to turn to some random person and say, right, you be high priest for us. We've got no one else. No, they need the high priest that God has appointed. They need in this case, the descendant of Aaron. They need the one who comes down through that family line. Well, in God's mercies, here he is. Now, that's so significant because it's well and good Israel coming back to build again the structure of the temple. But if there's no high priest to actually offer the sacrifices and to represent the nation before God and to actually go before God and intercede for his mercy and plead for the people, if there's no high priest... Well, they might get the temple built, but it's all pretty much in vain. 
That they might be able to build the temple, they might be able to play act at the various duties of religion, but if they don't have God's appointed high priest, their whole religious structure is vanity. Well, thankfully, God in his providence has cared for the needs of the people. He's preserved the line of the high priest here. Then notice Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Back in the glory days of Israel, when it was a united nation under David and then Solomon, God had promised that he would establish the household of David forever. God promised, in fact, that David's descendant would sit upon the throne over God's people forever. It was a a gospel promise. And God was emphasizing to David that the day would come when the everlasting king arrives, when the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And he's going to be your descendant, David. Christ will come and he's going to come from your family line. And from that time, God's people, at least those who took God's word seriously, those who were of faith, God's people were looking for the arrival of the Savior in the household of David. They're looking for this king to stand up from the house of David. In the meantime, everything's fallen to pieces. The family of David had come crashing down when ultimately the nation was carried off into Babylon. After the days of Josiah, you you had a number of the final kings in the house of David, but they'd all been wicked men and they were all uh, dethroned and carried off. Zedekiah, for example, he died in Babylon. He he, um, his sons were all killed before his eyes and he was kept in prison till he was dead. It, it looked like the house of David was gone. It looked like the whole line of kings was gone. And with that, it looked like all the gospel promises had failed. How's the Messiah going to come now? Well, thankfully, God could be trusted to have his hand upon it. Second Kings uh, tells of King Jehoiakim. He had been carried off into captivity And remarkably, after 37 years in captivity, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the new emperor of Babylon, actually elevated Jehoiakim from prison to a position of prominence once again. You read about it right at the end of 2 Kings. Because of the surprising mercy that Jehoiakim had received from the Babylonians, as a result, his line was preserved And now when we read about Zerubbabel, this is his grandson. This is the one standing in that family line. This is, you could say, the rightful king of Israel. Now, admittedly, in the days of Ezra, it's not as if the nation is totally independent. It's not as if they are free entirely from Persian rule. So he's not going to stand right now as the king of Israel, the way perhaps David once did. But at the same time, here is their leader, and it's the appropriate man to do so. Here's the rightful king. And you know, when you see this man's name, it emphasizes the faithfulness of God who has preserved the line of David and who has preserved even his gospel promises through the years, even when all hope looked lost. You know, for we who are the Lord's, we can at times be brought through dark seasons, periods where we look around ourselves, maybe in society and the cause of Christ looks bleak, or maybe on the personal level, we can go through patches in life where everything seems hopeless. And yet we do have a God who absolutely will deliver on his word. We have then an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Our God, who cannot lie, has promised good things to us, and he delivers on it. And here he is delivering on it, even bringing the line of David through, bringing Zerubbabel through from this captivity. 
Now again, just like it would all be vain if Israel were to return and try to establish the temple and yet they have no high priest. Well, similarly, you could say that the whole project was vain if they didn't have a legitimate man to lead them. If the line of David was dead and gone, if the promises of God have all failed, well then what's the point? Might as well give this up now, it's worthless. But because that's not so, because they do have the appropriate high priest, because they do have the the king, or at least the one who, who is rightful king, well they can go forth into the promised land with courage in their hearts. God has given them the appropriate leaders. Now for ourselves, we're not national Israel, But at the same time, we do need the appropriate leader. We need the son of David to be the captain of our salvation. We need the God-ordained high priest to represent us and to bring us unto God. And without him, it's all vain. You know, in these New Testament days, the good news of the gospel goes forth that these rules are fulfilled by Christ. Jesus Christ has come. He's He's that shoot who's come forth from the rod of Jesse, from the family of David. He's the one who surprisingly has arisen. God has been merciful and unto us a child has been born. And not just any child, but the rightful king. The promise of his father goes to him. We were singing of it in Psalm 110. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. You know, God declares, I have set my king upon my holy hill. Of Zion, And today Jesus Christ stands as the great king, the captain who can defeat every spiritual foe and who can lead his people into triumph and who leads us out from sin and from death and who leads us into the presence of God. He's the king who can lead us home from our captivity. Likewise, Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Of course, he's not from the line of Aaron. It's one of the major things that the book of Hebrews addresses. Christ is a great high priest. In fact, greater than anyone from the line of Aaron. He he comes from, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a figure in the Old Testament. We'll not take time to go into it. But Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We were singing that as well in Psalm 110. And Hebrews is emphasizing we've got a high priest who is superior even to the whole line of, of Aaron. Christ is the perfect high priest who can stand and represent us before our God today. When we sin and we feel our guilt and our shame, we have a high priest who has offered the perfect sacrifice to put away our sin, even the sacrifice of himself when he went to the cross and laid down his life. Having been raised from the dead, Christ has entered into heaven, and there we're told that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. In the Old Testament days, when Israel felt their guilt, they could take comfort when they saw the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and there presenting the blood of the sacrifice and interceding for God's mercies in the nation. Well, today, when we feel our guilt, when we feel our shame, we we can look up and we can behold that we do have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Today, Christ stands as the high priest who can reconcile a sinner like you with your God through faith on him, on account of his sacrifice and his intercession. Your your sin can be forgiven in full. You can be accepted into the presence of God. He is the high priest. He is the king priest. 
It's worth asking, is your faith in this Christ? Are you trusting him? Have you fallen in behind Christ that he might be your king, the captain of your salvation, that he might be your great high priest? Let me point out that just like it would have been totally vain for the children of Israel to go back to the promised land and to rebuild the temple and to try and get on with playing out their religious life again, it would be totally vain if they don't have the appropriate king and the appropriate high priest, if they don't have Zerubbabel and if they don't have Joshua. It's vain. Well, similarly, totally vain for you or me to play at church, to play at Christian religion, if you don't actually have the God-ordained king and priest, even Christ, as your saviour. The good news is that Christ stands ready to be a saviour and to all who come and put their trust in him. But of course, for those who neglect him, and sadly there are many who neglect Christ himself. They'll, they'll play at religion. They'll, they'll go through the good works of Christianity, but they will neglect the actual saviour. And it's all vain. It's all worthless. We need this God-ordained king-priest. So we've considered the children of Israel in that we've thought of their leaders. I want you then to think about their honor, their honor. When we come to a chapter like this, we see a big long list of names. We don't know all the different people. And again, it, it doesn't make for that exciting reading. But Can I point out that this is not just some tedious register of names? It's it's really a a roll call of honor. You know, bear in mind that in the generations to come, after the days of Zerubbabel, Israelites will be looking back at this record, and some some of the people will be tracing their own family lines back to these families. And they'll see that, you know, my forefathers were among those who answered the call. They were there when people came forth and obeyed God and and invested themselves in building the temple. They were there. This is a rule call of honor. I said last week, it looks like many of the people of Israel who could have returned instead chose not to. A lot of people were fairly well settled in Babylon. This work was going to be difficult. Some people just didn't answer the call. Here, however, are those who did. This list of names is a rule of honor. Now, we might not know all these names. We find it hard to just even think who they might be. But nevertheless, here are people, and you might never know them. In this scene of time, you might know nothing else about them. Adin, Ater, Bezai, Jorah, Hashem, who are they? I don't know. But they're honored. They're honored in inspired scripture. There's a record of their honor set down. God has honored them. Here are men, here are families, you could say, the families of these men who who went forth and who invested themselves and who followed the Lord. There, there was an honoring of those who went forth, in fact, even an honoring of those who were fairly low in society. From verse 3 down through 35, you're told about all sorts of families that came out from the exile. In verse 36 through 42, it then tells you specifically about some of the priests and the Levites who returned. Uh, Probably they're singled out because they're going to be so important when it comes to the work of the temple. Uh, Then from verse 43, you'll see it mentions the Nethanim. Now that's that's just the Hebrew term written out in English, uh, in the English spelling. 
And it seems to mean something like the given ones. It, it seems to refer to a category of people who had been given as servants to the Levites, uh, those who would do menial tasks uh, loosely connected with the work at the temple. Uh, they're mentioned again in Ezra 8 verse 20, where they're described as those, uh, as those whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites. So here are some, and they've been given, they've been appointed uh, to serve the Levites. Uh, the Levites were responsible for managing lots of the temple affairs. Well, here are servants that have been given to them. Uh, quite a number of commentators, although they can't be absolutely sure on this, but they connect the Nathanim as far back as Joshua 9, uh, 23, when Israel came into the promised land. And you might remember that the Gibeonites, one of the peoples that were there, uh, deceived Israel, tricked them into thinking they were some, from some far off place, and Israel entered into a treaty with them. And through that means, the Gibeonites were preserved. Well, Joshua proclaimed that they were cursed and they were to be bondmen, reserved to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. Uh, they, they were spared, their lives weren't taken, but they were given over to some of these menial tasks related to the house of God. Uh, so most think these were largely not even necessarily ethnic Israelites, possibly even the descendants of defeated enemies who had been incorporated into the nation and placed into the service of the Levites. Whatever you make of them, the point is the Nathanim were pretty low on the rungs of society's ladder. But even for them, here they are. And some of them who chose to return, and by the way, that emphasizes that even if their position equates to something a little bit like slavery, they weren't treated like slaves in the way that we sometimes think about that. Here are people who chose to return. They had this low position, but they willingly came back and invested themselves in the cause of the Lord and they're named too. They are honored as well. They aren't just this forgotten people who no one cares about them. No, they are honored in the record as well. You know, God declared in 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, them that honor me, I will honor. Of course, the flip side of that, they, they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Well, here are people who honored the Lord. They were willing to step forth in faith. They were willing to take up this difficult task uh, of the work, going back to the promised land. And even, even as they invested themselves into this, they are no, no longer forgotten. Their names are remembered. Even among the lowly of them, the, the Nethanim, their, their families are remembered too. God has honored them. Them that honors me, says the Lord, I will honor you know, so it is with us. The gospel call comes to us. It urges us to leave behind our comfortable worldly existence. It urges us to take up our cross and to follow Christ by faith. In terms of this life, it makes us strangers and foreigners in this world. Sometimes it means we lose our reputation in this world. And, and yet be sure of it. Them that honor me, says the Lord, I will honor those who will heed the gospel call and will come to Christ and put their trust in Christ and actually walk with Christ maybe being despised by the world for, for it. Nevertheless, God will honor you. And especially that honor will be seen on the final day when the books are opened and the rule call of honor is read out, when the names are declared even from the Lamb's book of life and all of Christ's people will be named there. Here are the ones who look to Christ by faith. Here are the ones who counted the world loss for the great gain of Christ. Here they are. Their names are, are here and the names are read. These are the blessed of the Lord. 
In that day, there'll be many others who prioritized a comfortable existence here and now. They neglected Christ. And that day will bring shame and dishonor to them. But them who honor the Lord, he will honor. Have you taken up your cross? And are you walking with Christ today? Maybe you have to do so with great humility. Maybe you don't look like much in the world around. Maybe you don't look like much in the church. Just a lowly one in the church just getting on with serving Christ where you are. Maybe not really noticed too much by the rest of the world. And yet be sure of it. It's not in vain. Them that honor me, I will honor. You can say with Paul, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but also unto all them that love his appearing. First yeah, Peter 1, 6 and 7 tells us that even though today you might be in heaviness and facing manifold temptations, although there's all sorts of trials, ultimately you'll be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's honor for those who will answer the gospel call and who will step out and who will follow the Lord. I want you to notice also then their caution. We're thinking of these children of Israel who went up. Notice their caution. And by that, I'm referring to the fact that they were cautious to obey the Lord. They were conscious of the need to serve God in God's way. In the middle of this account, you have an interesting little section from verse 59 through to 63. Basically, what it describes is a number of Israelites who in general were not able to show their lineage. Now, for most of the people, that wasn't, it wasn't a disastrous issue. But they're, they're being mentioned in a slightly different way because they couldn't show who their forefathers were. In a day when family does matter, even more so than today, it was something of a disaster, but it, but it wasn't a major problem. They could still be welcomed into society. They could still be there as part of it, even if they couldn't prove their lineage. But then from verse 61, it mentions the children of the priests. This account may well have been written after the issue was sorted out, and now we know who they are, and maybe the issues are resolved. But at the time, they couldn't prove their lineage. These are children of the priest, and they they can't show their father's house. They can't prove where they've come from. Verse 62 says they sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Uh, From verse 61, it looks like the trouble came for at least one of those families when their ancestors married a daughter of Barzillai. He's he's a prominent man who helped David in 2 Samuel, I think it's 19. And it seems that because of his prominence, they took his family name rather than maintaining their own family name. Well, now, after the captivity in Babylon, there's, there's no legitimate record that actually traces them back to the priests rather than to Barzillai. And that seems to be the basic issue. They can't prove that they belong to the family of Aaron, to the priests. Now, that poses a major problem because by God's command, not only the high priest had to be a specific descendant from Aaron, but the priests as a whole came from the house of Aaron. 
Aaron and his sons had been appointed as the priests when Israel came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And from that time on, it was to be the house of Aaron who are the priests. It wasn't appropriate for just any Israelite to be appointed. It wasn't even appropriate for a Levite to be appointed, even though Aaron was a Levite. It had to be a Levite from the family of Aaron. So what are Israel meant to do here? Do they just assume that, well, these are strange circumstances and the men tell us that they're from the family of the priests, from from Aaron's family. Everything will be okay. No, they can't do that. Out of carefulness, out of caution to follow the Lord appropriately, these particular men were put out of the priesthood, at least for now. It wasn't permanent, but they were not allowed to participate until in verse 63, until there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. Now, I'm not getting into it now, but the Urim and Thummim were items used um, to reveal the mind of God. They were used in Old Testament times to reveal God's mind on certain unclear matters. Well, the point here is that until God sorts out this uncertainty, until it can be resolved, these men cannot continue functioning as priests. They, they cannot take of the holy things and, uh, and eat those holy things like other priests were entitled to do. That They, they can't just function with this, the assumption that everything will be all right, that they probably are priests. No, it, it needs to be sorted out first. See, see, Israel are determined to do things properly, at least at this point. We'll find later in the book, sadly, that doesn't always continue. But at least at this point, Israel are determined. If we're going to go forth in in serving the Lord here, we have to go forth by actually following the commands of God. But we can't just be pragmatic and take decisions for ourselves and do what we think suits best. No, if we're going to follow the Lord here, we have to go forward at his command. This was a time of revival when God was raising up his people. And it's worth noticing that obedience to the word of God went hand in hand with that. They understood it wasn't up to them just to determine for themselves. No, they must go forward in line with the word of God. Now, that's an important pattern for us as well. It's an important pattern when you think of times of revival and refreshing in our day. You know, those are times when, when on occasion, uh, pragmatism and all sorts of novelties can be introduced to the church because revival times tend to be exciting times. They can also be dangerous times. They're good times, blessed times, but, but there's also dangers there. There can be pragmatism thrown in, all kinds of interesting novelties can be added to the church in these kind of times. Here's a book that reminds us, no, when God is blessing, the way to keep going forward, the way to continue enjoying the blessing of God is to go forward at the command of God. Our God is the one who sets forth his word with, with all honor above his name, and we are to heed his word. Even as a church, we're to be those who go forward in obedience to the word. It's not up to us to just make our own notions into existence. No, we're to go forward on the basis of the word. That's the safe way forward. That's the way of obedience. That's the way uh, that honors our God. You know, on the personal level, when you think of answering the gospel call, lifting up your cross, going forward by faith in Jesus Christ, We should recognize that does involve turning from our own sins and turning from our own ways of living. Repentance 
and then a yielding of our lives to the Lord is always an accompaniment to true faith. That's why 1 John 2 verse 3 says, Hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith he knows, knows him, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. Now, obviously, just as our faith is always imperfect, so too our repentance is always imperfect. And Thankfully, we're not saved on the basis of how perfect our works are. Rather, we're saved on the basis of Christ's perfection. At the same time, the general principle is true faith will show itself in a real concern, a genuine concern that your life might be ordered by the will of God, a real concern that your life might be used for God, and you'll go forward then in God's way. Tell me, is your life yielded to the Lord? Is it your cry today, Lord, work in my heart, purge out the sin, purge out the folly, work in me, conform me to Christ. I want my life ordered by your will. See, that's the attitude that must accompany true faith. That has to be the desire of the Christian. That has to be the heart of any of us who profess the name of Christ. That as we see the work that Christ has done for us, laying down his life, bearing away our sin, that that we respond saying, Lord, work in me. Help me now to live unto you in your way. So we see here the caution, you could even say the obedience of these children of Israel. Finally, very quickly, can I point out their investment? The final part of the chapter gives us the total number of Israelites that returned. It was something like 50,000, give or take. We're told about their horses, mules, camels, asses, the different animals. And then from verse 68, as the chief men came to where the house of God should be, it says that they offered freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. According to verse 69, they gave after their ability onto the treasure of the work. Now, they'd received a lot of these things from the hand of neighbors and others who'd given it to them when they first left Babylon. But here they are now arriving in the promised land and they freely give according to their ability, all so that the work of God might go forward. Here are people who've been following the lead of the rightful king Zerubbabel, and the high priest Joshua, and they're honored for it. And as they, they go forth, they freely give of their substance as they're able because they recognize God's work has to take the place of priority. That The priority is not me being established again in this land and being wealthy for myself. The, the priority is that the work of God goes forward. The priority is that the name of God is glorified and they invest themselves to that end. God has given us this opportunity. The Lord has been gracious and he's brought us back and he's given us our our, our leader and our high priest and he's provided for us. Now I want to invest myself for the Lord. His things come first. Now again, this attitude isn't always going to be followed through in the nation, but you certainly see something of it here among the chief of the fathers. His, His things must come first. They freely give as as they are able. You know, that's what we're called to do when the gospel comes to us and Christ urges us to follow him. I'm not saying you have to give you know, financially more abundantly to church every week, but certainly as we follow Christ, we're to do so with the same attitude that was seen in these people. God's things come first. God's name is more important than my name. 
God's gospel cause is more important than my life ambitions. The the things of God take priority. At the end of the day, the stuff of this world is trivial in comparison to the things of God. And it's worth asking the question today, do we do we value our substance or do we value the things of God? As the gospel comes to us, it urges us to stop concerning ourselves with the things of this world and rather to seek treasure in heaven. And be sure there is treasure in heaven for all who will heed the gospel and take up the cross and follow Christ with a heart for God. Do the things of God get the priority for you today? Now to package this up, I suppose I'll retreat back to my second point a little bit to tie it all in, but you know, here are those who went forward for the Lord. They stepped in behind the appropriate leaders God had given. They went forth answering the call with priorities for the things of God, investing of themselves, looking to obey the Lord and go forward in God's way. And here's the record set down. Here's an honored people. And again, those who honor the Lord, he will honor. Here we have a rule call of the honorable children of Israel. They heard, they heeded the call of God. And I finish by asking, when, when the rule is called up yonder, of all those who honored and who gave their lives to Christ and served Christ with obedience and zeal, when the rule is called up yonder, will your name be there? For, for we who are in Christ, we can say, yes, Lord, by, by your grace, yes, praise the Lord. It will be there. May the Lord use his word today. Amen.